Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads and today I have a special guest with me, Mike Soberg. He is a specialist regarding communities and economic development and I believe you're calling me from Israel, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. How are you doing, Tom? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, very excited to talk about today's topics because community is something that I'm passionate about. Uh, and being from Nigeria, economic development is definitely something that I'm passionate about. So I'm very, very curious how you got started and what you know led you down this path. So um, the main thing was that first I was very passionate about economics and finance. And that's why I went to study economics. And in Israel, we have this thing that um, the, the Jews were separate all over the world. And suddenly we had a homeland. All my grandparents from the, from both my parents' side were in one way or another in the Holocaust. My mother's parents were for four years in the camps, five years in the camps, and took many years to get rehabilitated. And all of them, the only way they got rehabilitated was actually my parent, my mother's parents were in Australia and my grandfather on my father's side in Venezuela. Uh, very diverse. And in a later age, my parents uh, moved to Israel. I'm not going to tell the whole story. And there's a big thing about coming to a place that was Israel uh, was like a very underdeveloped country. And today, as most people know, it's a very high tech environment uh, leading with innovation. And it's an amazing story. And when and I grew up in the center of Israel, very close to Tel Aviv, where everything's really affluent and amazingly people are educated. And only two hours, an hour and a half out of Tel Aviv is an area called uh, the Negev. And up north, an hour and a half is an area called Galilee, which is very short distance if you think about it in the U.S. terms or other countries. But the population, the amount and the level of education and the investment in infrastructure, it's like a whole different country. So I always say my, my parents uh, and grandparents moved to Israel and I moved to, to do development for Israel, and I moved uh, to the periphery of Israel to do development there. 
And that's like something that really made me passionate about. And when I decided to study economics, I got accepted to a very prestigious college, which we'll, we'll get back to, named IDC. I got a full scholarship. And even though I was accepted there, I decided to go to the Negev, to the uh, university there, two hours out of the major city and outside of the high-tech ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. And then obviously uh, led you down to this path and you've come up with several theories. I believe you told me a story about you been helping the WeWork uh, to be moved in, in, a, in a city in Israel. Is that Beersheva? Yeah, exactly, Beersheva. So um, thanks for capping me on that. <laughs> when I moved to study in Beersheva, I fell in love, I fell in love uh, with the city. And usually what you see a lot of times in places that are more... Um, uh, poor or arid because and that's what I love about community because the community is is more in need and, and the individual in the community are more uh, in in all kinds of needs so they have to have the community to help each other they have to commute together that if you're really rich you can have a car and drive alone but if you have only uh, if you have less money you'll probably want to commute and, and carpool just to save a few bucks so you want to make meals together and you see how the communities there are so connected and people are so warm and so uh, helpful for each other. And I really fell in love in the city. When I finished my first degree as a accounting in economics and accounting, I got accepted for management consulting in Tel Aviv. And we did a project for, that's the nonprofit I worked for, Or Movement, which built communities in the peripheries of, and I fell in love with them. And I told them that when they opened the economic development um, chapter, which that's the program we worked in management consulting for them in the company, uh, I want to come and manage it. And they laughed because I was a, a very young, I was just an intern then in the beginning and then just a very um, junior associate. Uh, but I got into being in politics a bit. I was a spokesman. And then I went for the job and applied and got it. And for two over two years, I was working with companies all over the world trying to make them move and consider moving to the Negev, to the periphery as well, not to the Tel Aviv. It's like telling to people in the, in the U.S., let's say we want to open an office in San Francisco, hey guys, uh, won't you go to Lodi or some like uh, Stockton or like a very small town outside, it's very far. Mm. And, 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 it, and for companies in Israel, it's a big gap mentality and you have to really create economic development. And that's what partially... Uh, that nonprofit does. And after two years doing it, uh, WeWork, which uh, uh, the founder, Adam Neumann, is, uh, is, is a former Israeli, grew up actually in the Negev, and some of the investors are very closely related to Israel, they decided um, that no matter that it's not the best financial investment, they decided that they're going to open, and because of the future, the prospect, they believe in what can be in, in the Negev. And it was a big risk. And I knew the CEO of WeWork from different works I did to bring companies around. And somehow he said, listen, man, you're the guy for the job. Like, I asked him, who are you looking for? And he said, bottom line, you're the perfect guy for the job. I really considered because I really loved my job, but I understood it's like the huge, the best challenge in the negative. Just to understand there was no high-tech companies in the negative at all. And WeWork is a place, a hub for high-tech companies. Now, how do you open a WeWork where there's, like, at the time, there were already, like, maybe five or six starting to come up because there were incentives and stuff like that. How do you build something that's supposed to take part of the ecosystem and it's bigger than the whole ecosystem? 
And that was a huge challenge. And what WeWork did, if most of the places around the world, WeWork opens where there's so many high-tech companies and so many entrepreneurs that they give a, a solution to a lot of people who have the need, there WeWork created such an amazing ecosystem that people became entrepreneurs. We, be, we created programs. We collaborated with the university. The university, even though they had a lot of space, they opened a chapter. We did the collaboration to, with them to open an accelerator at WeWork. Uh, we did uh, different agreements with government uh, companies, which are high-tech related, to open um, offices in WeWork. So government companies and, and uh, universities opening in a WeWork isn't a very ordinary thing. Uh, and we created an amazing ecosystem. If you go to Beersheba, it's not like when you go to New York and you go downtown. You go to WeWork and 90% of the ecosystem in startups will be in WeWork of the whole city. And it really created a whole change mindset. And, and it was a statement like for also other people when WeWork opened in Beersheba, it was a statement for others and other companies who followed. Oh, if WeWork opened something in Beersheba, that means that there's something there. And you know, it's like, if you believe in something, it will happen. So WeWork believed in it, and they opened, and then other companies, oh, WeWork believe in it, so we want to believe in it. And now they're already opening another building, uh, not of WeWork, another high-tech building, and there are already three high three buildings in the high-tech park, and a place that was arid from high-tech totally, right. was only factories. Hmm. So, you know, you're explaining this to me, and, I, and I've heard you say peripheral areas a lot of times. Can you talk about that? Because... I don't think a lot of the audience knows what peripheral areas are. And tell me why you, you think peripheral areas are very important. Um, so it's, periphery is something that's very subjective. Um, in Israel, because we're a small country, and in the end you have um, differentiation of income and, and education and all kinds of social capital. Um, so it's spread, but it's spread closely, more closely when you talk about distance. But still, you see a huge difference between um, the main population in Tel Aviv, which is known as an international, multinational country where we have over 300 uh, multinational companies having a base there, and Beersheba, which is like an hour and a half outside the area. But when we talk about peripheral, we talk about it's, it's in somewhat also the distance because it affects, but you see it in different KPIs. You see, in, you see it in, in, in different indicators. You see it in income per family. You see it in level of education. Um, you see it um, in infrastructure in the area. Um, there's so many. It's that's the basic things you you measure it. Um, children per family, um, and you see, like you know, in uh, underdeveloped countries, you usually have very large families, and when you're more developed country, you have less kids, and then you only can send um, a few to to have a higher education, or you can invest less in the kids. Um, all kinds of different parameters, and those people that are born into that reality, it's mentally hard for them to leave. It's, it's mentally hard for them to get the social capital, the educational capital, the, sometimes it's like um, motivational capital to get out of there. And usually if they get out, and that's what we were talking before you start recording about uh, cross-pollination, they never come back. Because if you made it out, this place is uh, with, with weak infrastructure, with weak education, I wouldn't want my kids to study there. And the idea is how to create and how do you move. It, um, when we were working for non-profit, what we did, we, we proposed the idea to the government and they took it. We said 
we need more centers of life. What happened in Israel, you had one center of life, which was Tel Aviv. If you wanted to do something, if you wanted to really study, if you wanted to make it, you wanted to get a good job, you had to be in the Tel Aviv area. You would have some small, really good opportunities in, in other areas, but they were scarce. Yeah. Um, and when you do that, what happens, and you were asking me why is it so important, what happens, and you see today, people aren't talking about countries, people talking about cities. You have New York, you have San Francisco, you have Berlin, you have Tel Aviv, you have capitals that are so strong, and everybody wants to be in a capital. And slowly you see that only the strong people go to those capitals and make more money, become more affluent, and have a higher social capital. And slowly you see more peripheral areas, like cities that were people had a lot of uh, middle class in those cities become empty because all their talent is sucked into the really strong capitals. And instead of having uh, more equality in the world, you see that the people that are in the major cities are some of them, but like you can, there you have the opportunity to really make it uh, large. And other cities, you don't have that opportunity. You have the opportunity to make it uh, middle class at best. And then all the talent gets sucked to the major cities, yeah. to those capitals. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And the reason why I was very curious about that, and when we talked about having you on, it, it was interesting to me because, you know, you, when we look at the world and where we see opportunity, we always talk about what New York, you know, Los Angeles, Chicago, you know, all these big cities in Israel, Tel Aviv, um, you know, Nigeria, Lagos, all these types of places that are big, Cairo, Egypt, um, but you have a theory that we need to start working more with those peripheral areas as well, because a lot of people live there as well. And if there's more opportunity there, there's more you know, economic development overall for the country. Exactly. And there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, when I did my MBA, what, one of the things you learn is that for people to create change, they always see something that's, that's there is three times more valuable and that's something that's, that they weren't there that they don't know yet, three times more dangerous as it really is. And what happens, all the major corporations can give so much, like we work, like uh, Google or different companies that can bring so much value to these areas. Um, their effect on the area is so huge, and but they're usually afraid to come out because they listen, we're going to open an office and we want to find talent and we want to find where there are um, uh, co- um company that we can work with, we want to find ecosystems, and they're scared to go to places with weak ecosystems. And when they come to those cities, they have a, what we call a multiplier. When a high-tech company opens office in an area, especially when we talk about the peripheral area, they create four more jobs. So think about coming of a company to a place that is really um, high unemployment, and you have a new high-tech job, it creates another job in food, in uh, in transportation, in so many different education. It creates a lot of other peripheral jobs. And what we were talking about that we see in this day and age are a huge rise in the inequality parameters, what we call the Gini index. And more we see this uh, higher rate uh, in the index of inequality, we see things that happened like before World War II and before all the big major crises that you have this um, separation, and we see it in the U.S. now, and the people that are uh, feeling that they're um, forgotten, and they feel they have no other way, and they start to do things that are irrational, emotional, uh, a lot of anger. You see what happened in Germany before World War II is the best example. People turned to Hitler because they didn't have money to eat or food, and, they, and somebody gave them a magic solution. 
and people lose their rationality. And what one of the series I was talking about is, we, I hope uh, most of you saw, our listeners uh, saw The Hunger Games. And what I say can be an effect that can happen in the world is if we have such strong capital, we'll have, have uh, countries with one strong capital that everybody's affluent and has all the newest clothes and newest vehicles. And we'll have districts that are poor, that all you have there is manufacturing and people that you suck the talents and the tributes from the place to um, amuse people in the capital. And in the end, it will uh, end with an uprising against not like what happened in Germany, one country against another country, but uprising uh, between countries and civil wars be between the affluent rich people from the capitals uh, with all the people from the districts that, you know, I've, I've gotten jobs, but, you know, we're in a day and age that there's so much value created in the world and so much technology, there's no reason why everybody should, like, there shouldn't be hunger in the world. There really shouldn't be uh, sicknesses in the world. There really should be education to all. It's not not possible. Yeah. It yeah. just doesn't happen from, from, the right, uh, from the not right allocations and people thinking about um, their best interests and not looking at the world as a global community. And if people would look at things as from the community, um, I said we would have synergies. And those synergies is what we say. If we create another job and another opportunity, and I would say for people in Tel Aviv that don't want to move to Brescia, I said, oh, I love it here because there's restaurants and so much choices and so many things to do. So if you have in Tel Aviv about 500 restaurants and you're going maybe once a week to a restaurant, maybe twice, I'm not talking about the small things in the afternoon, that usually takes the same thing underneath your office. But um, how many from the 500 restaurants do you need? How many from the 200 theaters do you need? Um, if you create one more uh, theater, if you create one more restaurant, if you create more things, more um, school, more education in, in a peripheral area, more jobs, it's something that creates somebody that can have another work opportunity, another work opportunity that can save him for education. More edu and, and again, and we have to... As a global community, as a, if you think as a country, as a community, we have to invest in the what can and may be districts. Because uh, if not, and we see it already around the world, we see areas that are considered districts uh, fighting against the system. I think what happened in the U.S., and I'm not going to get too much into it, happened as a vote against the system and not for somebody. And we see it all over the world that people want to see things against the system, which uh, represent the capital. And it can be very dangerous to the world if the global community doesn't start thinking as a community and continues thinking about self-interest. Yeah, that's a good example. I know you didn't want to go into the politics yet, but even when I'm looking at what happened here with the election, a lot of a lot of the votes came down to Middle America, and a lot of people said, you know, Middle America is a forgotten part of America, right? No one really talks about their needs, and they've, you know, whatever base led and started talking to them and said, hey, we are going to provide this, we're going to provide that. They felt like, hey, my goodness, this is something that I am, uh, someone that really is listening to us. So um, it's interesting that you say that because you're saying if we concentrate all the wealth in, you know, several, all these, you know, metropolitan areas, we risk, you know, building potentially negative sentiment in, in the peripheral areas because they feel forgotten and we're not developing mm -hmm. that area. And that doesn't ultimately benefit the whole country. So, how do we... And I, Sorry, go ahead. I, and I was going to say, I think part of the problem that 
if we want to talk Donald Trump that got elected and actually went to the sentiment vote of, oh, you were forgotten, but he went against uh, your neighbors, against Mexico, and say, let's bring our jobs, let's go America first. And I think that's also against what I believe should be the, the global community thinking. I think that also using other large districts against, and that can be also dangerous, because that's just going back to what happened in World War II, using, oh, we'll blame the Jews, we'll blame the French, we'll blame the English, we'll blame the Americans, and then just creating war and disaster. I think we, th we should think as a global community, and there's a lot of opportunities for the U.S., and U.S. is the most amazing economy, and I was there now for a month, such an amazing place. And I think only thanks to the diversity and to the collaboration, global collaboration and global exports and not uh, creating walls, but breaking walls. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I admire exactly what you're doing. And I, obviously, it's not easy. It's hard. So I'm, I'm curious, though. So you obviously work with businesses to try and get people to explore the different areas that are not Tel Aviv. And for those of us in Tel Aviv, is, um, is that the, uh, the, is like the New York of uh, Israel, right? Correct? Tel Aviv would be the New York of Israel for sure. The prices here in Tel Aviv are like in New York. <laughs> and, All right. And and yeah. So if you were asking how how we can how can we do it? Yeah. So countries do it, but but they don't really know how to promote it. So what I did in the nonprofit, and I still do, even though I left the nonprofit, it was one of the turns when I joined WeWork. Was uh, I said, listen, we have such amazing resources, which is students. And the students study economics and they study about air, about companies and study about business. Let's give them real case studies and let's give them target companies, companies that may consider moving to Israel, global companies. And let's give them uh, and teach them about the incentive, the government incentives and the cost opportunities of human capital, cost of goods, uh, cost of land. Um, cost of cost of people, not just the human capital. Even though is, Israel is very small and diff and the distance, like if you take a train, it's one hour uh, from Beersheba to Tel Aviv. The, the average salary in Beersheba is about twenty to thirty percent lower. Hmm. You think you live in the same country, and for the same the average of salary in Beersheba is thirty percent lower than than in Tel Aviv. Yeah, wow, that's 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 crazy, and that happens a lot here too. I guess that's because of standard of living, though, right? The cost and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but that's an opportunity. In the end, if you have great human capital, they're commuting in. Why don't you just even go in and do a slingshot a bit even further and open opportunities in other districts? Like there is, uh, there is a rationality of 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 everybody being close. But the thing is, it becomes such a, a red ocean and becomes such a fight about human talent if they try to do it other places. And we see it actually in Israel we, working amazing. We see talents in Beresheva that also one of the things and indicated we saw the, the, the turnover of, of, of human capital. What happens in Tel Aviv because it's such a huge fight for human capital? People change jobs every year or two years. People that are in Beresheva because of the smaller ecosystem or the, so people don't change job that often and it's the same as people that would be accepted anywhere um, so we see different indicators that really save money and create a better work environment we see much more homey and people that are much more uh, you know old school that are appreciated for the work and much more loyal to their employers um, it's there's a lot of uh, what we call regional soft skills that add uh, to innovation that add 
to a different culture that really can teach each other and create cross-pollination within corporations. If you go all to, like, I would say that New York, in almost every parameter, is much closer than Tel Aviv than Be'er Sheva. So if you open a company in Tel Aviv and, and New York, you'll probably have very similar um, people, very similar uh, level of education and, and interest. And I think also we have a lot of similar things, cultural, cultural like. Be'er Sheva is very different. Yeah, and um, even though it's very close, and that's very interesting. And I think also in the U.S., you see diversity between people in the Midwest and people in the West Coast and people in the East Coast. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very, very different sometimes when you go there. Um, okay, so then g- give me. By the way, yeah, go ahead. So there's a company called EMC, which was just recently acquired by Dell for sixty-seven billion dollars. So EMC is a very large multinational corporation, and. Their excellence center in Beersheba, one I think out of 40 or something, because um, there's 70 offices around the world and they have only a few excellence centers. Like for the last three years, almost every year wins in a row um, the the first prize in innovation. Um, and, and, and we see it because I work with most of the multinationals very close. You have... And you can, in many places, create a culture of family, but because of the, the regional soft skills, the, the, the area, I'm sure if you go to Brazil or you go to the so many warm places that, you know, with warm culture, um, that you see how the culture affects the work and the work that's more close, that's more co- community-oriented. When, and when I, what I love and what I think about community is when people think about more than themselves and they think about others, First of all, it's motivating. Second of all, it creates a lot of synergies. It creates a lot of value for the company. I think most of the companies push for people to work together, to collaborate, to help each other, to look in what I'm good and what I'm, what are my uh, weaknesses and not be, try to be the best and show the highest score for me, but ha- try to get the highest score for all of us. So if I'm good in X and mediocre in Y, I won't try to make um, the highest uh, aggregated score for myself, I would say, okay, I'll do only X, X, and I'll find somebody that will help me with Y, uh, and we'll do the Y, and maybe I'll, I'll give him my thing, and, and we'll work about it together. Somebody else will be kind enough to stop his work and help me with my Y. Um, and you see that in places that have community community orientation. Yeah, no, I hear you, I hear you. I know this, this is very good for me, because I'm definitely, you know, a lot of what I want to do, obviously, what I, you know, when you, you get successful is to go back and develop sort of the ecosystem in, in Nigeria. Um, and I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm, you know, I'm from Lagos, so I'm from the equivalent of Tel Aviv in your, in, in Israel, but I'm definitely thinking more about just not keeping that in Lagos, keeping it in other, you know, peripheral areas because, you know, I don't know how much you know about Nigeria, but it, it's very populated, right? So it's, it's over, you know, over 180 million people and wow. not everybody lives in Lagos. I'm sure there, there's a lot of, <laughs> You know, there's a, there's a lot of areas where you could develop. So I, I think this is very cool for the education. Um, when people think about Israel, there, there are several things that come to mind. So I want you to educate the audience on the on the geography of Israel, how Israel people are, you know, what the differences are with, between the major cities, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, even Beersheba. Um, and then mm-hmm. after, I'm going to ask you about uh, some of the political things. Okay. Um, so as I was saying, Tel Aviv is not just a central area. It's really also almost in the center. Uh, but on the coastline, um, 
It's hard to say like what kind of the people are Tel Aviv besides the main thing you can mark them is maybe that they're mostly secular people. Mm. Uh, but if you talk about their origin, Israel is so diverse because Jews left our homeland 2,000 years ago by the Romans and were scattered all over. They got to Spain and then, you know, to North Africa and to Eastern Europe and some of them moved to the U.S., like my grandparents in Australia. And then in the end, when Israel was re reopened for Jews, especially when the state of Israel was founded, so everybody came back. So we have here families with people that after three, four hundred, maybe a thousand years in Morocco, we, we have even Ethiopian Jews. People don't know it, but we have um, like African Jews. Um, the story goes to King Solomon that had an affair with Queen of Shiva, and, and that's the, that's the um, African Jews. Wow. And so we have set, and we have Russians. We had over a million Russians come here after in 90, from 1991 to 1997 after the USSR fell. So we have such a huge diversity. So if you think about Tel Aviv, the diversity is huge, but it's main, but uh, we have uh, mostly people that are secular. If you think of Jerusalem, which is really like central, um, but it's in the center of the country, not like it's, Next to Tel Aviv, it's 45 minutes from Tel Aviv, but east. So it's, it's not just in the center. It's also in the center between east and west. And, but the, the Jerusalem area is, if we talk that Tel Aviv is very diverse, in, in Jerusalem we have uh, East Jerusalem that is mainly um, Arab-Palestinians. And you have a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews. And you have a lot of secular Jews, diversity like Tel Aviv. And it's very tense between sometimes Orthodox Jews and secular Jews and between Arabs and Jews. And there's also a lot of different religions that are stationed in Jerusalem because, as we all know, Jerusalem is holy to so many um, religions. Um, if you think about the south of Israel, so Ben-Gurion, our first prime minister, um, said that we need to settle the Negev, and he just sent... A lot of people there, and the main people that he sent there was actually people from North Africa, um, from from Ar uh, more Arab or Muslim-oriented countries. So actually, the people there, even though they're Jews, like they were, were really more oriented to um, uh, Morocco, Algeria, Tunis, uh, Iraq, uh, Tehran, from Persia. There are a lot, a lot of Persian Jews, um, but again, and a lot of Russians. When the Russians came in 1991, and that's part of what really created the potential for a high-tech ecosystem, um, they, they built a cities of caravans and tents for 200,000 people there. And that's part of you say how to do it. You take, you have 100 million people. You just find a reason or a way to move a lot of educated people out of things and give them um, very cheap accommodation and create things around it. And you build it from that. In Israel, even and and the north is actually half Arab and half Jewish. And I was telling you also that the whole of Israel, even though people see Israel as a Jewish state, um, and I'm not talking about the West Bank, Israel, the known and recognized Israel worldwide, has more a bit more than eight million um, uh, citizens, and almost twenty percent of them are Arabs, which are what we call Palestinians, but. People, when they think of Palestinians, think about the West Bank, but they're actually what we call Arab Israelis. So, and that's very confusing because on the West Bank, there are the Palestinians that were sometimes engaged with them, but 
the only difference between those Palestinians and those Palestinians that they were on one side of the border and they were on the other. But the ones that are part of in the in Israel, what we call the 67 border, um, have full rights. They have about uh, 11 or 12 uh, percent of seats in parliament. Uh, they have their own party. Um, they can affect things. Um, there's even uh, one that's a, a sub-minister, um, a vice minister. And there's different things in the way. And we, we coexist. And it's really, really interesting. And what we were talking about, that the two and a half million Palestinians on the other side, they wished it could be on the Israeli side. Um, and that's part of, it. we'll get to politics in a second, but you see amazing uh, education and progress from Arab people in the north. We have a small city called Nazareth. You probably heard about it because of Jesus, right? Jesus yeah, of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, yeah. So actually in Nazareth, there's a very quick high-tech uh, ecosystem developing there that's actually pushed mostly from the Arab, uh, it's, it's not Arab Muslims, it's Arab Christians that, that live there. Huh. Interesting. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is so fascinating. So then what about the politics though? Because people sometimes, I guess, especially on the West side, they don't, you know, they're, they're, you hear about Palestine, you hear about Israelis, there's always, there seems to be always fighting, but what are they, what are they fighting about? And why exactly uh, is it the cause of so much conflict? So I can't speak in behalf of most of the people, but I can just tell, try and tell the story. Mm -hmm. And what's very confusing, at least to me, um, Israel in 47 got the, this, the area of Palestine that was a British mandate was separated to area for the Jews and area for the Arabs that were living here in the area. And the area was actually very arid from Arabs. Uh, before, the British actually brought a lot of Arabs from Egypt and from Syria and from those areas to come and be and, and be labor work. And also the Jews actually brought them a lot for, for, for labor work. And then in 47, they divided the country where there was a majority of Jews, it was uh, the Jewish state, and where there was a majority of Arabs, the Arab state. And then there was, once uh, the UN divided, the Jews were really happy because two years after World War II, suddenly we had a state somewhere that after... My family that lost all my, I don't have any grand grandparents, don't have any cousins, nothing besides my grandparents who survived. Um, they lost their, their brothers, their sisters, their parents. Suddenly there was a place that, you know, was for us that nobody could said you can't come in. And, and people in Israel were, were celebrating in the street. The Arabs said, no way. We want the whole thing. Everything's ours. And seven armies came and attacked Israel. And Israel defense itself was, was people that just came from World War II. And, Long story short, because it was a year, almost a year and a half, there was a, a truce line, uh, which what we call the 67 border, and I'll explain why the 67, not 48, or actually the 48 border. And there were actually, the West Bank wasn't, and, and then I asked people, what happened with the West Bank? They had the West Bank. And the answer is, it was part of Jordan. And for some reason, and, and Gaza Strip wasn't Israel, Gaza Strip was part of Egypt. And only in 67, when there was a, another, there were another few wars, actually 53, Israel conquered all of the Sinai that was part of Egypt, and it gave it straight back. And in 67, when Israel wasn't threatened, there was a six-day war. Israel took the land from Jordan, and then it became the West Bank that we know, and Palestinians 20 years later became and, and asked for their own state from Israel. And the question comes to mind, if it was a Palestinian state, if it's Palestine, why didn't the Jordanians 
which conquered that 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 were in that land, give it to to Jordan to give it to Palestinians. They had 19 years that they ruled the area. If the problem and the issue is really uh, giving a Palestinian state, uh, like the, we, they're so careful and and the Jordanian is so care caring and the, the Egyptians are so caring about Gaza Strip to give it. So why didn't they give it? Another fun fact. In 79, Israel had a truce, a peace agreement with Egypt and gave all the Sinai back only for, for, for peace. We gave land and only for peace. And what happened is we said, okay, take the Gaza Strip. And Egypt refused to take the Gaza Strip. And they said, you need to solve with the Palestinians their problem. If they would really want to solve the problem with the Palestinians, why didn't they take the Gaza Strip and give Palestinians their country? We, we wanted to give it back to Egypt. Um, then in, in the peace agreements, when we had the peace agreements with the Palestinians, we gave them not only the whole of the West Bank back, uh, we gave them guns and weapons to have their own guard. And in 2000, they wanted what's called the right of return, when they were supposed to finalize their agreement. Then Ehud Barak, the prime minister, was offering them 99% of the whole territories. Um, all of the, the Clinton roadmap, which says where there's the majority of Arabs in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Israel was willing to give back part of the Holy City with the majority of Arabs, mostly the East part. But the Palestinians insisted on the right of return. Now, what's the right of return? There is about four generations of Palestinians since 48. They wanted all the, all the Palestinians that ever lived in the state of Israel and left because of the fighting to have the right of return into the state of Israel, where I told you where it's more affluent in our country and, and they have the right to vote. Now, if you have a Palestinian country and you ask for a Palestinian country, why do you want three million Palestinians to move from your country to our country? Like you, if you want a Palestinian state, so let us have a Jewish state. And, and that's the main, and, and they couldn't have the agreement. And there was a second intifada. And then I think when was the huge shift in Israel that for 40 years, almost straight, we had, uh, a left wing, uh, pushing for peace government to having a right wing government saying, listen, we can't have any agreements with Palestinians. We tried and it cost us a lot of lives and blowing up buses and terrorism and everything. And, and we can't do it anymore. Another, that happened when I was a soldier in 2005 we did the disengagement from Gaza we did no agreement we said you know what if you want the Gaza Strip we'll just leave I took families out of their homes Jewish families and made them leave their home because we said okay if we're conquering the Gaza Strip and the problem is they're conquering their area let's leave it and Prime Minister Ariel Sharon rest in peace said okay and ordered the army to, to take out all the Jews and it was enforced and leave all their houses and everything behind and what we got that after a year Hamas took over and me as somebody that lived in the Negev in Beersheba got in rockets almost on a daily basis. So it created a huge shift that today you have that no matter who wins in the politics, you have much more of people that say, listen, we, we can't have a two-state solution or we can't give them uh, the territory. And also de facto what happened that the settlements which we can dispute for many years, many for, for the years until the 90s were very small. It was very easy to take out. Like what happened in the Gaza Strip, there was only 7,000 Jews there. So what happened with the years, now there's almost half a million Jews in the West Bank. So it's already so mixed up that it's almost an impossible thing to solve. So good luck to Jared Kushner that uh, Trump says that he can solve the, the thing, but we don't see any solution. But 
what's happening in the meanwhile that I think everybody's so tired from fighting and Israel is so well um, well guarded that and people come and learn from us that people don't attack us anymore. And we have actually, I think, less terror attacks in Europe. I don't hear almost Israel, like we had a horrible terrorist attack two days ago um, that three people were killed, but we don't have stories like in Berlin or like in the subway in, in London or like what happened in the uh, concert in Paris and horrible stories. Oh, God forbid, 9-11. Um, everybody knows when you fly a lot in Israel, you have to go like three security checks and it's annoying, but like we, so we guarded ourselves, and that's the only thing that, that showed a real, um, success. So that's it. Yeah. Well, thank you for educating me. I didn't, I didn't really know. I know a lot of people, um, you know, we only hear one side of the story. So thank, thank you for giving the other side of the story. Um, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I want people to, get a chance to know how they can reach out to you because you've said a lot. You've talked about the importance of um, building communities, peripheral areas, uh, you know, uh, what, you know, cross-pollination, the younger games theory. And someone here might be listening and thinking, all right, fine, I have a business. I want to reach out to, you know, to, to Mike and see if we can expand it into all these peripheral areas. Where can they reach out to you and um, what course do you have that you can um, teach them on? Okay, so my email is uh, michael.silberg, which is Michael like any Michael you usually write, dot silberg, S-I-L-B-E-R-G, at gmail.com. Right now, I don't have any courses online. I mainly teach at IDC, uh, which if we cap on the story that a university, like a very prestigious university I didn't go to study at, now I'm a lecturer there, um, with a course about regional business development that I was telling you before. Um, I'm sure if you don't mind, we'll maybe post it on the blog or something sure. on the, sure, sure. and we'll have the email there. Um, I'm happy to talk about it and advise anybody on the issue because I think it's really important. And also I really, if before we finish and, and wrap it up, I don't want it to sound, I was like always on the side that was the most left wing in, in Israel. I'm just more awakened. And also, I believe the cross-pollination isn't just between, should be between uh, the U.S. and Mexico and global. I think, and that's one of the methods for peace, that if you have economic, if you're affluent and everybody has enough money and, you know, they have food on their plate and they have education, so there'll be peace. So if you ask me what's the solution in the end, it doesn't matter if you give two-state solution or one-state solution. In the end, if you have what you have now, an ecosystem of high-tech growing in Nazareth. And by the way, in Ramallah, which is part of the West Bank, is a, a high-tech ecosystem growing really rapidly there. And we invest in all the districts and not just concentrate where it's easiest, where you know there's already talent, where you go and you go to places and you invest effort in developing new areas and new talent. You'll get back not just in your own investment as a company, you'll create an investment that affects the whole district. And I think that will also affect the whole global community. Absolutely. No, thank you. No, thank you for sharing. And I definitely didn't even get that impression. I, I you know, I get the idea that, you know, you, you think that there can be more done, um, but because it's such complex and there's so many variables, um, you know, it's almost, yeah, I guess a lot of people feel like it's almost hopeless, but I, you know, I'm an, I'm an optimist, Mike. So I think there's there's always hope, but you know you you know given I'm with you, man. I'm totally with you. I just think the the hope will come. Sometimes you know when 
Louis C.K. said it so beautifully. He said, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is like his two daughters. You know, yeah. shout each other in, in the end. You just say, go to your room, and that's it, you know. <laughs> exactly. Just, you know, until, 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 you know, you, you grow up and grow up enough and say, what did we fight about? And no, just you're too grown to, to fight anymore. And exactly. I hope it happens sooner than later. I hope so too, but I do want to thank you though because uh, this has been a very educational podcast, and and we'll definitely make sure we put you you know your email address in, in the show notes uh, in case people want to reach out to you. But thank you for spending the time. Um, and uh, it's almost Yom Kippur there, right? Yeah, yeah, we're just going into Yom Kippur, which is a day that we uh, for twenty four hours, twenty five hours, um, just repent our, our sins and ask forgiveness from one each other and have time to do our soul searching. Uh, which is amazing. Like you should come here once for Yom Kippur. There's no cars in the street, even though there's no law not to drive. It's just out of a respect. And even people that are non-religious use this day as the day for soul searching. And I think it's one of the most amazing things in our tradition. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, and I definitely want to come out there. So I definitely will let you know when that when that comes out there. But um, um, Last question before I leave. I always ask all my guests this. How do they use their differences to make a difference? That's, you know, use your difference to make a difference is my mission statement. So how do you use your difference to make a difference? Um, so now the question is, what are my difference? I think my difference is, is me coming from diversity and me coming from a place that people, my grandparents were immigrants and my parents were immigrants. And I think I bring the idea that... Um, Try new things, go to new frontiers, and 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 see it as an even though see it as a challenge, a challenge in a good way. Where there's challenge, usually there's opportunity, um, and I try to really um, encourage uh, large companies. You know, they say nobody got fired for hiring IBM. I, I encourage them to take risks and go to new districts and to take to new locations and not just to go to the most easiest affluent areas. And not just have and find interesting, new, challenging investments, but uh, have a difference on the world and on different uh, parts of our global community. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And you definitely do a good job of that. You know, I've, I've met Mike in person, and this is something I'm really passionate about. But ladies and gentlemen, till next week, use a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 